0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen On. Over the last 200 years, nothing has divided us more than our free market economic system. Is it the source of every social injustice, from exploitation to alienation to inequality? Or is it essential to our individual freedom and democracy? This debate is as relevant today in 2020 as it was in 1920 or 1820. So what's up with our contemporary free market economic system? How do we fix capitalism? So if there is a a father of Silicon Valley reporters the original journalist, the guy who discovered, perhaps in some ways even invented Silicon Valley, it's a fellow called Mike Malone. He's a long, long time uh, reporter, journalist, academic, writer. Mike, I, I don't want to ask how old you are, but you've been doing this a long time, right?
1: I've been doing this a long time. I just turned 66. I started when I was 25.
0: Were you the original tech reporter in Silicon
1: Valley, or was there anyone before you? Well, there were a couple people in the trade press, but for the general press, I was probably, I'm pretty sure I was the first daily technology reporter in the world. Which is pretty cool.
0: So you, you did that for a while, and now you're a, a university professor, an authority on all things tech, and most importantly in terms of this conversation, a best-selling author, your new book, which you wrote with uh, William Davidow, a legendary Silicon Valley uh, venture capitalist, is entitled The Autonomous Revolution, Reclaiming the Future We've Sold to Machines. Pretty dramatic title, Mike. What's going on with The Autonomous Revolution?
1: Well, quite a bit, actually. Uh, the reason Bill and I wrote this book, we wrote, we wrote a book 25 years ago together called the virtual corporation and it was a big bestseller and it was cover of business week and all that stuff. And it it put that term into the language. And what happened then was we were looking around and thinking, you know, everything's starting to get digitized. And we we were just seeing the birth of the internet and thought this is going to change completely the way businesses operate forever. Well, about two years ago we had lunch And we got to talking, and we're talking about cybernetics and the web and robotics and big data and all these new phenomena happening out there. And we said, you know, everyone's saying this is the third or the fourth industrial revolution. But we don't agree with that. If you extrapolate out from what we're seeing, something far more profound is happening to us. And it's going to be unlike anything in the live, in the memories of anybody alive. And in fact, the more you look at it, the more you realize this has only happened twice before in human history: uh, the the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution. So, Mike,
0: you're you're a longtime tech journalist. You've heard the hyperbole of every tech founder from Jobs to Wozniak to Brin and Zuckerberg, yep. and we had this all too often before. That this is the biggest thing ever to happen in human history. Blah blah blah, and it's always yeah. happening in Silicon Valley.
1: Yeah, no, we've we've told that story many times. That's why we keep calling it a revolution. Uh, the problem is, those are transformative. Those are major evolutionary jumps that have taken place: the integrated circuit, the internet that sort of thing. What this is though, this is a full-blown phase change. And to understand that, you can't just look back at 1958 with the integrated circuit or 47 with the transistor and say, ooh, things are gonna change radically. Yeah, well they're continuously changing radically right now thanks to Moore's Law. The question is, do we have a complete historic discontinuity? sitting right ahead of us.
0: So you're saying that um, first we had the agricultural revolution, which yeah. I think most of our listeners will be quite familiar with. Right. Then the industrial revolution, which I assume you would date from what, the middle of the 1700s through to right. today. Yep. And then the next, that this third profound, profoundly transformative event in human history, you're calling the autonomous
1: revolution. Right. Because we suddenly have a partner in all of this, for the first time in human history, we are exist well, at least since modern man emerged. This is the first time we're going to be operating with essentially another species, equal to us in some ways, some ways smarter than us, in some ways more limited than us. But we're going to, we are increasingly handing over more and more decision making to AI and to robot.
0: Right. So, so, Mike, just hold on here. Yeah. You are saying that AI, smartphones, smart machines, smart cars, the, the algorithm, you're describing that as another species? Very much like another species. But don't we create it? Doesn't it essentially just do what we tell it to do? It doesn't have consciousness in any way.
1: Not yet. We may it may never have full consciousness, but it's going it's increasingly obtaining autonomy. If you look at the Internet of Things that's emerging, a lot of decision making is going to be done by our machines. Increasingly we used to think, you know, twenty years ago we thought, well robots come along, they're gonna take over some of the blue collar manual labor jobs. But the reality is right now you can open up a daily newspaper and half of the stories in there were written by robots we used to think professional positions thought positions would not be assumed by our machines but you read the thing the other day from Google radiology is now better done by machines than it is by people with medical degrees more and more of our activities were handing off to our machines because they can they can calculate faster they can derive data from more and more uh sensors and other inputs that are scattered geographically around the world they can obtain data faster they can process data faster there's some things they can't do but more and more of our lives are being handed off to these machines and that's only going to increase that's why we're calling this a phase shift i mean think about it
0: well when you say phase shift that's
1: P-H-A-S-E. What do you mean yeah. by that word? Well, it comes from physics. A phase change, which is the proper term we're using, phase changes. is, take for example, water. If you lived at the equator and you had only seen liquid water, you would think, okay, I know what water is. It's a liquid. It flows. We control it through hydraulics and pipes and those sort of things. Now, If one day the temperature dropped below 32 degrees Fahrenheit and the water froze, would you be able to even recognize that was water? None of the tools and rules you've used to deal with water would work anymore. You can't run ice through pipes. All of a sudden, we're now in the world of solid state physics. There's new rules. There's new behavior. You would not know that ice would, gets bigger as it freezes, unlike most other liquids that turn into solids, and that's why we have life on Earth. What will this world look like? Why will it be
0: so different if machines can't think for themselves, or if the algorithm can't think for themselves? And uh, after all, we're just we're just telling these smart machines what to do. Why is that different from the industrial revolution?
1: Because we're telling them, we are less and less telling them what to do and they are operating themselves autonomously because they now have the processing speed, they have the memory, they have the input coming from powerful sensors. They can process information much faster than we can. Now, will they be self-conscious? Will they know who they are? Probably not, but in every other way, they're going to assume more and more of our activities.
0: But when you own them still, and they're still controlled by giant corporations, they they don't own themselves.
1: You just answered your own question. Do you find that edifying? They'll be owned by giant corporations?
0: No, I'm I'm not saying that, but my my point is simply that in, in that sense, it's no different from the Industrial Revolution where you had... Large corporations owning the means of production.
1: Yeah, but you had large corporations, but they were employing human beings uh, and producing what we call the, the the good job, which is only about a hundred and fifty year old phenomenon. Uh, the question is now because that these new because these autonomous machines operate under different rules, they're like water to ice. These new rules are gonna profoundly affect every corner of society.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. With BetterHelp, you can connect with professional counselors in a safe and private online environment and get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can even schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. At BetterHelp, their licensed professional counselors specialize in a number of expertises, including depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, and trauma and anything you share is confidential. If you are not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time with no additional cost. BetterHelp has 3,000 US licensed therapists across all 50 states and is available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours via text chat on your phone or through video on your desktop, mobile web, Android and iOS apps. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, professional and affordable. As being a listener of KeenOn, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code KEENON. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash keenon. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash keenon. Now back to the show. So let's talk about these new rules. Let's address the, the biggest issues of all, which you touched on earlier: jobs. How is that going to change? How is the autonomous revolution going to change the way we work?
1: The first thing I need to tell you, it's going to sound like I'm punting a little bit here. But remember, if you don't know what ice looks like, you have to discover the rules and you can't guess ahead of time what the rules are going to be. So a lot of the rules of this new reality, this new world we're moving into, we can't know yet. We actually have to get into it and experience it and respond extremely fast. And the lesson of the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution was that there was a lot of blood spill, there was a lot of mess, uh, social disheaval and everything else as people adapted to these and discovered these new rules. And we're going to run into the same thing now. A few things we can see. One of them is, we're essentially operating now in two different realities. We live in the natural world. And if you look at the number of hours people spend every week on the Internet, we're operating almost as much now in cyberspace. And those two places have very different rules. For example, the natural world doesn't have a purpose or at least one that we can know. It The tree, trees don't grow for us trees grow. Okay, in cyberspace that's a world of reality that was created to essentially monetize our attention and our and our behavior, our private information. <clears throat> so it operates under a very different set of rules. The natural world is almost intrinsically inflationary. The cyber world is intrinsically deflationary so our economy is sort of getting already getting pulled into two we're spending just as much for food and and all the stuff of, of real life and more for homes that's all inflationary meanwhile we're getting a whole bunch of freeware freeware in cyberspace so our economy is now becoming uh schizophrenic in very interesting ways how is this going to change capitalism? What what uh, I know
0: in your book, uh, you, you you spend quite a lot of time on Keynes, uh, on on Smith, on the classical economists. What will be the impact of the autonomous revolution on the the foundations of our capitalist economy?
1: Well, one of the foundations of capitalism is scarcity, and the whole purpose of capitalism, in you could argue, was to overcome scarcity as best you can. That, and one of the achievements of capitalism over the last couple hundred years since Adam Smith is we don't have as many famines now. Uh, the calorie, calorie consumption of the average person in the world is much greater than before. We've increased a fair amount of wealth and capital has been used to drive things like mining and you know, developing more and more efficient machines and health and all of that. So scarcity has been the driving system of capitalism. And where capitalism has failed, uh, socialism has come in and said, okay, yeah, there's a lot of rewards from capitalism, but it hasn't been equally distributed. So let's develop another system that distributes this more fairly. Now, Arguably, in a world with autonomous machines doing an enormous amount of our work for us, we're maybe moving into an era in which scarcity stops being a major problem, that we can get what we need, that we can get food and we can get entertainment, we can get education, we can get all these things very inexpensively. So scarcity doesn't become the driving force.
0: But Mike, aren't there, I understand what you're saying, but in the digital age, aren't there new kinds of scarcity, attention, trust, in particular in the early part of the twenty first century, which didn't seem to exist as much in the in, in the
1: oh yeah in the analog industrial age. Oh yeah, and and, and privacy and liberty right. and all of those things they become the, they become the new valuable commodities and that's where the battles are going to take place not on goods and services. And we can see that starting to emerge and we have no rules on or even a methodology for how we deal with that. We're still we're still operating under kind of a market system. That's why you know freeware has become so ubiquitous on the web now and it's in many ways a very pernicious thing because uh, apps and everything else that are free we go well that's great we get it for nothing but hidden in that is the fact that we are actually selling ourselves in order to get that freeware we're you know you buy that pack of chewing gum now and it it ends up on 2,000 servers around the world within three months
0: Mike you're, you're suggesting that we're in a, a kind of a, a historical, no man's land between two worlds, the industrial world uh yeah. and the world of uh the autonomous revolution who is, apart from you and you and 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 Bill Davidow, who else is making sense of it particularly politically are there people who are getting this who are creating new parties new movements new ideologies
1: you know not yet i mean i I've been in this situation before where you get you get a little bit ahead of the curve and you're sort of out there alone but then the world catches up pretty quickly and i think what we're seeing is we're seeing certain themes emerging culturally that haven't haven't aggregated yet they haven't gelled yet as a political movement but i th- i think a lot of the the major forces we're seeing at work, for example, in the Democratic Party right now, the shift, the the amount of uh, number of candidates that have gone quite left on this, and they're grasping for, there's a sense that something's not right, that the world doesn't seem to be as explicable as it was just a few years ago. And I think that that chaotic force is our sense that a lot of this stuff is we don't know what it is, but it's something's emerging out there, and something big. And I, I, I draw the analogy: if you were a if you were a goat herder uh, in 3000 BC, and you're driving your goats in the Levant, and you come over a hill, and sitting there is the first city. There's Jericho. You literally have no idea what you're looking at. You know, That's your
0: ice, right? That's the ice you described.
1: Yes, you you know there's something incredible there, but you you don't know if it's even full of human beings. You just see these buildings and then you notice there's people scurrying around and you walk into the city and there's shops and you've never seen a shop before. There's all this abundance. There's all this behavior. There's people that just do bureaucratic work. It is so alien to you. It's as if you landed on another planet.
0: What do you have to see? I I get that metaphor, and it's a very powerful one. But um, would it be for someone to go on the Internet to see a self-driving car, to see one of these automated uh, robots in factories? What is the the vision that would be so stunning today?
1: The vision would be so stunning today is you probably find yourself in the course of a day passing the touring test 100 times that you would be dealing you would realize that you are dealing all day long with individuals but you don't know if they're real or not real and you would probably the mo- the scary phenomena that- blade, so
0: it's blade runner really the world yeah. of blade runner come to real becoming real it's
1: science fiction but another one another thing that might a terrifying turn might be that you got you, you graduate from college and you discover not only can you not get a job but it's very likely you will never get a job your entire life and we call these we call this Zevs zero economic value citizens and you could have a PhD in something but the machine autonomous machines are already doing a better job than you. You will never get, you will never catch up with them because thanks to Moore's law, they're getting more powerful every couple of years. Well, you're pretty much stuck with the IQ you have.
0: Mike, um, uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, Albert Wenger, you know, of union square ventures was on the show and he, I think he, he he doesn't have your language, but I think he, he is also in your camp in terms of the magnitude and drama of this change. And he thinks it's a good thing really for humans because it will liberate us from mundane tasks and we'll all be free to be creative and we'll have some sort of social welfare mechanism, some sort of guaranteed minimum wage that will allow us... To do what we've always wanted to do. Are you in Albert's optimistic camp
1: on this stuff? I've got one foot in his camp. Uh, you know, I, I'm a I'm a student of history, and one of the things you notice is that the transitions into these revolutions are pretty nasty. There, there's you know, there's oceans of blood uh, making the transition. Some people don't want to go across. Other people are in a hurry to get across new st- new cultural structures arise you know in the in the birth of the industrial revolution we had the luddites and we had sabotage and we had we had that dickensian world of people in factories and that sort of thing so i think the transition is actually the scary part i think he's right on the far end if we live in a world without scarcity and we live in a world where machines are assuming all of the drudgery and even some of the more interesting tasks in the world, then human beings are liberated. The question is, and, and we'll probably look after the Industrial Revolution, life expectancy went up, child mortality went down, literacy went up. I mean, it was a remarkable transformation. Now, looking ahead, if we get through this trans- transition, the question becomes much more of almost a spiritual one. A cultural one. We'll have all the tools. We'll have all the freedom to do what we want. But do we know what we want to do? Can we? Can we provide ourselves for two hundred years? We've lived happily with the idea of the good job. You know, it's moderately rewarding. You know, it takes up our day. It gives a purpose to our life. There's a bit of a drudgery in it, but we get to retire. We get a pension. That's the good job, and it's going away. If we're free to do anything we want, what do we want to do? How will we spend our days to make them fulfilling so that we can be 80 years old and look back on our lives and say, I did something important. I did something valuable. Or do we, or do we resort to revert to hedonism or do we, we uh, to anime where we just sit there and play video games? Or if we have, my sense is we're going to have a lot less disposable income. Uh, but we won't need most much money, because at the very minimum, we'll probably have a guaranteed annual income. We'll be sitting in a, a free apartment, looking at a wall-sized TV, flying our you know rented drone over Petra or something, and um, we'll have all of these, you know, bread and circuses, but will they fulfill us? Will we feel like our life is worthy?
0: Well you, you, you use your own ex- your, your own life. I know you're a, you're a, a very dedicated family man. You have how many sons do you have? Two. Do you have a couple of sons you you've spent yeah. your life writing often as a freelancer. You've had jobs yourself. Yeah. Uh, are, are there um are there, is there stuff from your life that can be used as a, an example for how to live in the future?
1: Yeah, no one's ever asked me that, but yeah, I'm sort of living that life. Uh, Part of it is you have to find fulfillment in other things. One of them is, you know, I'm I'm producing works of art, in a sense, books, so that's fulfilling. You know, my name's on the front of the book, so I've created this thing. that will probably outlast me. It takes a lot of discipline, as you know, to be a freelancer. It's real easy to get distracted and sit there and watch TV all day or, you know, find a book you like instead of actually pressing yourself forward to create stuff. uh, You have to really manage money carefully. Uh, You have to keep your name out there. I mean, it's kind of a glimpse of where we may be going. That's, I mean, that's literally as much as I can tell you. I mean, that's a very great, that's a terrific question because in a sense, in California, at least here, we're both here in California, California's trying to act like Canute and hold back the tide, you know, by by making freelancing almost illegal. Uh, and my sense is the future is freelancing. Uh, it's There's not going to be that many people with full-time jobs. So we're all going to be members of not the proletariat, but the precariat. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and I think, and I think there's even the potential that you can decide not to do anything, uh, and live and live a moderately, you know, healthy, successful life. But I don't know. I we're going to find out the limits of human beings in terms of how we define ourselves. Uh, the, the The idea of a job is only 200 years old, and before that, you, you worked. You were part of the family on the farm. And that had its own rewards. And we don't really have an understanding of what the internal uh, existential rewards are going to be in a world where machines are doing most of the work.
0: Mike, I know you're also a keen observer of politics. Do you see both Trump, the popularity of Trump as a kind of uh, uh, a nostalgist, a romantic nostalgist that America was great at some point? and Bernie Sanders who's also in his own way nostalgic are these symptoms are these two guys Trump and Sanders are these symptoms of the the birth of this new order they don't get the future but they're certainly reacting um to these profoundly traumatic changes
1: yeah i think you know the, the rise of populism in the country over the last few years i think has been driven by this sort of Underlying sense of unease uh, that that the world seems to be going, our lives seem to be going a little bit crazier and more unpredictable, and so these are sort of rear guard movements to try to restore what we think has been lost, and you know they're moderately successful, but I don't think you know we have we have record you know. Employment and all these other things going on, the economy's at, at record level. I just don't think, you know, companies have, I've covered companies now for 40 years, and oftentimes industries are the most successful and the most profitable, take newspapers, right before they go off the cliff. And my sense is we're enjoying kind of a a thermidor, uh, to use a French Revolution phrase, Right mm. now, that we're kind of enjoying a brief interval of good times, but I think we're not far from going back to where we were ten years ago, with record high unemployment and more and more people leaving the workforce. Uh, I think ahead of us is most of us leaving the workforce and not voluntarily. Finally, Mike.
0: Um, now, whether or not this is really this autonomous revolution you're describing in the new book, whether or not it's really as big a deal as the, industri- the industrial or the agricultural revolution. There's no doubt that it is a, a, a massively important moment in human history. You've had, a, you've had a front row seat on this digital revolution. As you suggested, you were perhaps the first full-time tech reporter. You've been doing this for 40 years. You've been watching the evolution of Silicon Valley, its ups, its downs. What have you most learned in your life from observing the autonomous revolution? How would you summarize this experience? Because you've seen probably more and met more of the architects of this revolution than anybody.
1: Yeah, I think I've basically met them all. Uh, I I, I go back even further than the beginning of my reporting days. I went to elementary school with Steve Jobs. Uh, David Packard wrote my college was Jobs as awful as everyone says he was? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, Steve Jobs basically found himself a genius and manipulated him to do great things. And you can say all you want about how difficult the guy was, and he was truly a difficult human being. But look what he did. And he, when he got sick he changed into a different person and those 10 years at the beginning of this century uh, where he, you know, Apple introduced one gigantic industry creating product after another really all is all to the credit of Steve. I mean, he created one of the first only only guys ever to create in a giant corporation, a attitude of risk-taking and innovation instead of stifling that He rewarded it and punished conservatism. So all credit to Steve. But I mean, like David Packard wrote my college rec letter. And, you know, I watched the beginnings of uh, Intel when they were just in one building. I mean, so I go back even to my childhood covering this town. And I mean, if there are certain things I've discovered is brains aren't enough. You know, character really does count more than intelligence and my sense is in the years to come character is going to become much more important than brains because we're we're never going to match the brains of our machines again so it comes down to what kind of person you are or what kind of character you have the second thing is i'm a true believer in entrepreneurship entrepreneurs are the most interesting people and the most important people in our society If we lose them, then we're stuck with corporations that are just getting bigger and bigger and more acquisitive, and they buy up all the startups, and we go into a period of stasis. All innovation, all great innovation, all great imagination, job creation, and the vitality of our society comes from entrepreneurs, and the problem with entrepreneurs is they have no voice in our economy, in our society. We only hear about them when their company turns a billion dollars, you know. But before then, the, when they're building those companies, that's when they're most vital. And and Congress isn't taking care of them. The the administration doesn't take care of them. Uh, other, the giant corporations are trying to crush them. And if we're going to have, if we're going to make a soft landing through this Autonomous revolution is going to be entrepreneurs that get us through, help us, help provide some of the jobs that are going to be taken away.
0: So everyone should become entrepreneurs, Mike. In this new
1: I age think of- I, I think we're already becoming entrepreneurs of our own life. You know, and having seen these people at the beginning, I mean, I saw I saw Woz and Jobs buying the parts for the Apple One at the local hobby shop here, and I saw. I was literally inside of eBay when it was just Pierre and Jeff and a card table. Um, you And I was at Google. I spent a night at Google right when they only had like a million searches a day. I, you see the vitality. You see how it changes the individuals in, involved and it, it, it enlivens them. It produces, it puts them at the most at the peak period of their life and attention. I mean, it's it's just the greatest thing that you can possibly do. Even if you fail and everybody fails. I mean, that's why Silicon Valley works is because we're used to living with failure. We don't, we, you don't get a stigmata from it that you can't do it again. I mean, it's the most, it's the most human of activities.
0: Today's episode was brought to you by BetterHelp. You've been listening to Keynote hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening. Keen On isn't just a podcast. It's also a book. Our memorable interviews from last year's show about democracy with best-selling writers like Shoshana Zuboff have been turned into a book. Entitled Tomorrow's Versus Yesterdays, Conversations in Defense of the Future, it's available at all good online and offline bookstores. So if you want to read this podcast, please buy tomorrow's versus yesterday's. It's the essential
1: analog complement to this digital show.